open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, if you will, this morning. Acts chapter 15. So we are 47 weeks into our journey through the Bible, uh, using a book called The 52 Greatest Stories of the Bible, which means that <laughs> we're halfway through Acts, there's still a lot of Bible left, right? I mean, Acts is only the fifth book in the New Testament, 27 books. That, so that means you're talking about jumping on the expressway, uh, taking a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. That's what the next five weeks are going to be like. So we're going we're gonna to run through the remaining 22 chapters of the Bible. I mean, 22 books of the Bible in five weeks. So it uh, should be a lot of fun. But today we, uh, uh, we arrive at Acts 15. And so let me do a little bit of reflection of where we have been in the last couple of weeks. Uh, because we have spent uh, the last several weeks, better than a month, in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells the shocking story of how a ragtag group of men and women started the most significant religious movement in history. It is a remarkable story. The stature of this group is incompatible with the scope of their assignment. Their assignment was simple. Make disciples in every country of the whole world. After issuing this command, his command, Christ then just floats off into heaven. The world the world? Most had never traveled more than 30 miles outside of their hometown. Discipleship meant teaching, and teaching meant speaking, and not many possessed this ability. Navigate a boat? Check. Keep accurate records of finances? Check. Skilled in black ops missions? Check. I didn't know there was a Navy SEAL embedded into the Disciples, right? A, a guy who's, uh, before meeting Jesus, his whole life was about killing tax collectors. And he was stealth at it. I like it when I say something like that because I see it kind of turning through your heads like, who, which one of those 12? To those commissioned, not one could check adequate speaker as an ability. Acts is a reminder of an all-too-familiar Bible teaching. God uses the inept to accomplish the impossible. We must not have any inept people in the house this morning. Because all of the inept people would have said, Amen. That's right. Praise God. God uses inept people to accomplish the impossible. He chooses the foolishness of the world to confound the wise. So if you don't feel like you're really smart, then you fall into the right category for Christianity. God likes people who don't know a lot. Because that's little he has to overcome in using them. And God just specializes in taking fools and making much out of them. So how did they do it? They received the baptism of the Spirit, 
Remember? I mean, because it was brought up in our life group this morning is the fact that the book of Acts reminds us, in Acts chapter 10 especially, reminds us that we are here today because God took 120 people in an upper room and gave them the Spirit, and now we are a part of the largest religious organization in the world. And it started with this group of people. They received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Christ told them in John's Gospel, John chapter 14, verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these Will he do? Why? Because I'm going to the Father in heaven? Furthermore, they accomplish this great commission by believing in the reality of Christ's resurrection. Some people ask, why do we not see the, the church as a force in our day like we see it in the book of Acts? And the more I've thought about that over the years, I, I can only come to one conclusion. They have the same Holy Spirit that we have, so it's not like they had a different kind of Holy Spirit. I believe it's in this second, second part. And that is, they literally believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And it changed everything. You see, I would propose to us this morning that many of us believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but we are not fully convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. What made them lay down their life in the manner in which they did? What made them die in the manner in which they did? What made them live their lives to the extent in which they did? Is because they saw a dead man get up. Listen, when you know that somebody has rose from the dead, and then they give you a commission and say, look, I'm going to be with you, And everything that I have, you have. The same Spirit that lives in me now lives in you. The same Spirit that raised me from the dead now dwells in you. You can do what they did. You can leave monies behind. You can face persecution and make the sacrifices that they made. When Christians live their life in the fullness of the Spirit, an unwavering faith in the resurrection, there is no obstacle that they can can overcome. Can I say that to you again? When Christians live their life in the fullness of the Spirit, an unwavering faith and confidence in the resurrection, there is no obstacle they can't overcome. What do you produce when when you combine powered by the Spirit and propelled by the resurrection? A movement which, according to the to Jews in Thessalonica, turned the world upside down. This world-changing movement did not, did not always have the wind at its back. A cursory reading of Acts reveals an almost constant headwind. They faced persecution immediately. Many fell into poverty as a result of their beliefs. These initial headwinds were sufficient to derail them at any moment. But it didn't derail derail them. It only served to deepen them. You see, last week in Acts 10 and 11, along with this week's text, Acts 15, present the most significant and the most challenging headwind of all. For For a movement commissioned to reach the world, 
Nothing could be more deadly than prejudice. Peter, the chosen leader of this movement, is confronted by the Lord concerning his Gentile discrimination. Today's today's reading in Acts 15 is not a confrontation of an individual, but an institution, the church. Last week, Peter was confronted. This week, the church is confronted. So we move from individual to institution. Though Peter has experienced the work of grace, there yet remains a work in the heart of the people. Acts 15 serves as a midpoint in the book of Acts. This moment, listen, I cannot stress it enough, is monumental. 28 chapters in Acts, we've arrived at the halfway point. Humanity's future lies in the balance of the church. Less than 25 years old, the church is facing death. Who would this headwind or would this headwind make shipwreck of this gospel ship? Will the leadership be able to course correct and turn this headwind into a tailwind that sends them to all the world? So let's look at Acts 15 together this morning. We'll read through and preach at the same time. Maybe it'll make it a little faster. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So first thing that we need to see, this, this first issue, this first headwind, and a major headwind at that that they are facing is conflict over salvation. So I want us to look at the cause of the headwind, the cause of this conflict. The only way to correct this headwind is to confront it. Excuse me, let me back up. There's not one reference in Scripture concerning man where the phrase came down as positive. All right, so notice what happens. They come down from Jerusalem. I promise you that every time you see the phrase come down, came down, went down, it's always in the negative sense. This headwind is one of theological importance. Those who who came down from the mother church, which was at Jerusalem in Judea, are saying that salvation is Jesus plus circumcision. So they're saying that salvation is Jesus plus something else. That's the cause of the conflict. All right? Let me give you a quick equation to write down. Here's the gospel equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The non-gospel equation is Jesus plus something equals nothing. You can't add to Jesus when it comes to salvation or you don't have salvation. So that's the conflict. Now let's look at the correction. The correction is found in beginning in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, uh, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, 
It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So look, now it's just not only you got to be circumcised, but now you got to keep the law. Jesus plus something equals nothing. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's, he's going back to Acts 10. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting to test to the, excuse me. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. Usually that's what good preaching does. So maybe I should stop fishing for amens on Sunday. Maybe it's y'all silent just because it's good preaching. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied. Now, James, uh, that's the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now, notice how this next section of your Bible is kind of indented or offset. That reminds you that this is an Old Testament quotation coming up. And after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who knows these things, known Uh, from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaimed him for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So let's, let's dissect that, how this conflict, this headwind is corrected and turned into a tailwind. The only way that you correct a headwind is that you have to confront it. And the only way that you're going to uh, uh, correct conflict is you've got to confront it. The essential Christian doctrine is under attack. What's that essential Christian doctrine? That salvation is grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. When it, listen, when a central Christian doctrine is undermined, confrontation is our only course of action. Failure to confront will result in, in catastrophe. Now, I want you to write this down because this is important because y'all, y'all have heard me use some very, uh, I, what I would call hot language. Co- confront. You got to confront. 
Now, some of us are confrontational people, and we're like, yep, I like a good confrontation. And some of us are non-confrontational, and we're shriveling up right now thinking, oh, no, I don't, I don't do good with that. I just want people to get along and be happy and sing kumbaya and that kind of, okay? So write this down. In all, in all things essential, in all things essential, unity. In all things essential, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. So in all things essential, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. Now this is going to be important for us to hold on to. Because to me, this is in essence what this section that we just read is all about. There are essentials to the Christian faith that absolutely we have to have agreement on. And if we don't have agreement on, then we must confront. Salvation is absolutely the most essential doctrine in all the Bible. That we are saved by grace, through faith, not of works, in Christ alone. That's an essential that we must have unity in. And when there's not unity, when somebody is doing Jesus plus something equals salvation, then we have to confront that. And I don't want you to think of confrontation as negative, because what I'm talking about is not necessarily probably as negative as you have in mind. But I will say this, the Greek language here leaves, doesn't leave us to speculation. This is a very intense situation. Paul and Barnabas confront those from the mother church not to create division. Their aim was the preservation of unity. Paul taught emphatically in his letter to the Ephesian church that there was no longer Jew or Gentile, that the wall that had once divided them had been torn down by Christ. What Paul was saying, what, uh, what, what is being said here, let's don't build up what Christ has tore down. The word dissension in verse 2 is a powerful and, rob and robust word. It could also translate into insurrection, riot, and rebellion. Why such a forceful reaction? Context reveals to us the answer. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are praying with others in Antioch. And during this prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit tells them to set aside Paul and Barnabas for a specific work. Then in Acts 14, 24 through 28, records their return to Antioch and subsequent report of all that God had done and how he had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, imagine returning from a successful mission trip in the Sahara Desert where multitudes of Torag people convert from Islam to Christianity. And after submitting your report to the church leadership, they ask, were these people baptized? The team leader stands up and states that they were not baptized because there was no water. We were in a desert. Upon hearing this information, the leadership responds by denying the validity of their salvation because baptism is necessary for conversion. Does that kind of make sense of what's going on? Okay? Jesus plus 
something equals nothing. So let me from the text show you, show you the importance of the issue. At the conclusion of verse 2, Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem with the leadership of the mother church. Now listen, they're in Antioch. So to go from Antioch to Jerusalem was a distance of 300 miles. It took the average person in that day 20, 15 days to travel that distance. That's an average of 30, uh, 20 miles per day. When they arrived in verse 4 and 5, they were welcomed by some but confronted, but were confronted by others concerning the requirement of circumcision and keeping the law. We find great help and insight beginning in verse 6 in how to handle conflict and, de- conflict and debate in a matter that preserves unity. Here's how you do it. Let me first state the scripture does not sugarcoat the intensity of the debate. Greek scholars tell us the word for debate has the idea of yelling. This debate is a loud and raucous situation. And after much debate, Peter stood up, the biggest mouth in the room, and begins to speak. This is where it was God, this is where Jesus knew what he was doing when he made Peter the head. Right? Because they're in a fight, and the only person that could get above all the yelling and the screaming is the biggest mouth in the room who just happened to be Peter, who God just happened to who Christ just happened to put as the uh, the, the rock on which he was going to build the church. Peter the rock, whom Jesus said he was going to build a church, and I'm convinced that the only person who possessed the clout uh, which could turn this conversation in the right direction. Peter reminds them in verse 7 through 9 of his ministry to the Gentile, Cornelius. In verse 10, he asked them why they're testing God by placing a yoke on the neck of the Gentiles that neither their fathers nor they personally could bear. Listen, there were 613 Jewish laws. That's what they're referring to. The law of Moses, 613 laws. I imagine Peter saying, I did not keep them all and I was born a Jew. Not only did I not keep them all, but there were also some that I got confused about. Like, how far could we really walk on Sunday? And there were a few times that my Apple Watch said that I walked more steps than I should. Or I forgot to put my pedometer on that morning. Or I lost count while I was walking of how many steps I could actually go on the Sabbath and it not be counted as work. Most confusing of all, I believe, was yoga pants. Peter was all torn up about, how many of y'all remember um, sinful fabrics in the Bible? You can't mix certain fabrics with certain fabrics, right? And Peter's like, you know, we just have a hard time at my house kind of keeping that straight, and my wife's really into yoga pants, and she loves them. What do we do with that? Here's what Peter is saying. Peter is just simply saying this, is that here we are Jews, and we walk too far, and we wear clothing that we shouldn't wear, and we do stuff in the law that we shouldn't do simply because some of us just can't simply keep up with all the law. Why? Because what is he saying about the law? It's oppressive. It was a yoke 
on them. And if they had a hard time keeping it, why in the world would they want to inflict that onto new believers who were Gentiles? In verse 11, he reminds them, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. He's reminding them of what Christ had taught them. You're not saved by what you do, but by faith in what Christ has done. Peter's words are weighty in verse 12. And the whole assembly fell silent. Their reaction to Peter's words substantiated my earlier comment that Peter was the only one that could really change the course of the debate. Peter's statement allowed Paul and Barnabas to speak up about their work with the Gentile community. Following their speech was James, the half-brother of Jesus. His heartfelt words should prick the heart of every believer. Look at him. He says, I think it's in verse... Nineteen. He said, we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. If ever a scripture needed engraving on the cornerstone of every church, it's this one. You know what Matthew 7, 14 says? It says that the road of salvation is difficult. Narrow is the gate. Tough is the gate. Difficult is the road that leads to eternal life. Anybody familiar with that verse? Well, let me ask you a question. And I want to... I wanna, I want to attach Matthew 7, 14 to Galatians 5, 19. If Jesus says that the road to salvation is already a difficult one, then why in the world do we want to make it more difficult? Have you ever considered how difficult you might make it for those who are turning to God? Consider for a moment the persona you project. No, no. Don't do that. Don't do that. Ask others what kind of persona you project. Or let me ask you this. What kind of persona do other people say you project that you quickly dismiss as not being accurate? Listen, whether, whatever people perceive about you, whether it's right or not, it's right. Whatever perception people have of you, whether it's right or not, it's right because it's the reality in their mind. It's already difficult enough to come to Jesus. Why are we making it more difficult? We make it difficult for those who are turning to God when we project our sanitized lives. We make it difficult for those who are turning to God when we congregate in our cliques. We make it difficult for those who are turning to God when we pontificate our political preference or single out a particular sin. They corrected the headwind by changing their course, not the wind. Their, their direction... Not the wind was the issue. Yet there remained a headwind that needed addressing with the Gentiles. Jewish Christians were deeply Jewish, and those saved by grace through faith, they were not asked to give up their Jewish culture. God is not anti-culture, for He is the creator of culture. What our text aims to correct is the noun adjective order. The Jews were Jewish Christians. So let me, let me, let me explain 
noun adjective order. Here's what I mean by that. There are a lot of people who will say, I am a white Christian, a black Christian, a Jewish Christian, uh, a southern Christian, a northern Christian, a whatever Christian. So Christian is the noun, and then white, black, Hispanic, southern, northern, whatever, becomes the adjective, right? Whatever the adjective is tells the noun what to do. So when, when you put your culture in the adjective position, then your culture is now dictating to you your Christianity. What you have to do is, is you have to say, I am a Christian who is white. I am a Christian who is black. I am a Christian who is a Jew. I am a Christian who lives in the South. I am a Christian who lives in the North. I am a Christian. The Christian is the adjective and it tells the noun what to do. God doesn't, he doesn't come to take away our culture. He comes to define what Christianity should look like in our culture. Make sense? So the noun adjective relationship is what's important. They were, the Jews were allowing their culture to define their faith rather than their faith defining their culture. Now, let's wrap this up. So there's a letter, right? So they get all this worked out up in Jerusalem at the mother church. So they're like, okay, we need to write this letter to the Gentiles to tell them that, hey, y'all are good. You're not going to have any more problems out of Jewish people trying to force on you uh, law and circumcision. We know now that uh, salvation is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So they send this letter down, and it's written to Gentile believers, and, it's, and here's what's neat about it. They write about, and this is very helpful for us as we close, it writes concerning one essential element of faith and two non-essentials. Remember what I told you? In all things essential, what? Unity. Non-essential, and in all things, love. Okay, watch how this plays out. So they send this letter down. The first and third requests are the non-essentials, yet norms within their culture. The Gentile practices were offensive to Jews and would lead to fellowship problems. All right? So the second request of the letter was essential for sanctification, not salvation. That's um, the, the second request, the request of... Um, uh, sexual immorality, abstain from sexual immorality. And the first and third were non-essentials, yet norms within their culture. And these Gentile practices, these Gentile practices were offensive to Jews and would lead to fellowship problems. James told the Jews not to make it difficult for Gentiles to come to faith. And now he is telling Gentiles, don't make it difficult for Jews to fellowship with you. So what did he, what, what, what were these, um, so he said, um, abstain from eating food, from, uh, abstain from things polluted by idols, and then uh, stuff strangled uh, from blood. Here's what he's saying. Jason, 
I'm going to use me as an example. When you have your Jewish friend over, though steak should only be eaten at medium rare, amen, right? Not shoe leather, like my dad eats it. My dad would have been a great Jew, okay? Because, I mean, he burns that baby up. I mean, it's got to be, I mean, crisp. I'm like, Dad, potato chips are crisp, not steaks, all right? So... I'm going to eat a well-done steak with sadness in my heart, but joy on my face when my Jewish brother comes over. But when my Gentile brothers are over, let the blood flow. All right? Because that's the only way to eat a steak. That's That's what the letter is saying. The letter is saying, look, you have the liberty to eat that steak rare if you want to. And I used to have a friend that when he ordered his steak, this is what he would tell the the waitress. I want it three seconds on one side and three seconds on the other. Then bring it out. That's rare, okay? That's just a rare steak. He's saying you've got the right to do that, but there are times where you've got to take those rights and set them aside because it could hurt the fellowship with other believers. Now, some people might say, well, why don't the Jews just set theirs aside Right? You know, their freedom. But that's not the point. The point of it is, is that it would be, it would be easier for a Gentile to eat a well-done steak than it would be a Jew to eat a medium-rare steak. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying here, is we have to set aside those choices. The issue here is this. If we're not careful, we will end up having our own Acts 15 experience. And here's what I mean by that. Our, I, the, what I need to caution us against this morning, because we go there so easily, is that we too can often... Add to salvation without even really knowing that we're doing it. The debate in their day was circumcision and keeping the law. But we do have a list of activities that we often put out as will make you right with God. And most of these are not ever immoral activities. Like, are you involved in ministry? Do you have a daily quiet time? Are you in a small group? How many people did you share Christ How many people did you share Christ with this week? Do you adopt? Are you involved in orphan care? These are good questions of accountability, but these become a measure of, but when these become the measure of our spiritual lives and how we evaluate others, then we've missed the mark. Not only does this make us lose the gospel in our own lives, but it also makes it difficult for others to come to God. You see what I'm saying? The way that comes across is you're not, right with God because you're not doing these things. And that's not true. We are either right with God or not right with God based on what Christ has done and our faith in what He's done. Do you understand that? That's what I mean by being right with God. Now, in not doing these, not getting involved in ministry, not having quiet times, not being in a small group, these can adversely affect our relationship 
the closeness of our relationship with God, but it does not affect us being right with God. The gospel is that you are purified the moment you put faith in Christ, not faith in what you can do, but on what he's done. His last words on the cross were, it is finished, not go fix yourself. When we drift from grace to law, we drift from a focus on external transformation to, exter- to internal transformation to external conformity. So let me end with this because I want to hit some hot button issues with one sentence statements. I'm going to be done in four minutes. So watch. Five, four words, liquor, laundry, language, and legislation. Those are my four hot button words. Liquor, laundry, language, and legislation. We get fixated a whole lot more on external conformity than internal transformation. I'm right with God because I don't drink. They must not be right with God because they drink. So let me say it to you again. There is no prohibition, nor is there promotion, only caution when it comes to liquor in the Bible. All things in moderation. Well, I read a stat that says one out of every six people that drink becomes alcoholics. And I read a stat that says one out of every three people that eat become obese. Well, 100,000 people last year died, according to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, died in alcohol-related car accidents, and 300,000 people died of obesity last year. The Bible never gives a prohibition, nor nor does it promote. It always gives caution when it comes to liquor. But here's the thing. What we cannot do is set that up as some kind of external conformity that says that we're right with God. How about laundry? What we wear, how we dressed, dress. It's been a hot button issue in the church. Modesty should be a lifestyle emanating from the heart, but not a law. I'm all for people dressing modestly, especially ladies. But I've been in churches And I've heard it and I've read it where um, people, spirituality is called into question solely based on what's in their laundry basket. Well, she can't be that spiritual. Look at what she's got on. Or if you really want to be spiritual, you'll dress this way. You'll wear your hair this way. You'll abstain from makeup. Can I tell you something? Wear makeup. It's good. It's good for everybody. Fix your hair. That ain't nothing wrong with that. But when you make it a law, when you make it an external conformity, you miss the whole point of the gospel. And guess what? It becomes 
It makes the road to those who are coming to God difficult. And don't you love the way that verse reads? Not people who might come to God, but people who are coming to God. They're going to come. Just quit making it hard. It's hard enough. Next, sanitized speech is not an indicator of salvation. Nor does profanity indicate one does not possess Christ. I used to have a man in the first church I ever served in that every time I preached, he came out and gave me an attaboy that had an expletive in it. He said, that was one sermon. And I was always blown away by it. And he never, he never thought, thought, thought anything about it. I'm not ordaining that, okay? Don't hear me. But listen, sanitized speech is not an indicator of salvation, nor does someone who uses profanity indicate one that does not possess Christ. And then lastly, legislation. God has not endorsed a political party, so we must abstain from what I call and what Abraham Lincoln ultimately called God-on-our-side mentality. Well, how'd you vote in the election? I voted Democrat. <gasps> you sure you're going to heaven? You know what them Democrats stand for? Well, who'd you vote for in the election? I voted Republican. <gasps> I would never vote for someone whose president talks in such a manner, or, or their candidate, or this, or that, or whatever. And all of a sudden, what happens? Politics becomes a way that makes it really difficult for those who are coming to Christ. The God who you say you served is neither Democrat nor Republican. He is the independent of all independents. So let me leave you with this quote. See if it sounds familiar from history class. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each evokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask God's assistant, to ask a just God's assistant in wringing their beard from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, that neither has been answered fully, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wound, to care for him who shall be born the battle, who, who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace, among ourselves, and with all nations. That would be our 16th president's second inaugural address. We must not make it difficult for Gentiles who are coming to God. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. God knows everything about you, and he wants a relationship with you. God has overcome the greatest obstacle, sin, by sending his son to live the life required for salvation and by paying the price required for sinners. The, God, the son of God became a man 
to enable men to become sons of God. The gospel is no change and come, but come and he will change you. If you're not a Christian, then we invite you this morning to trust Christ for salvation. And if you are a Christian, I would ask you to do one simple thing. Repent for having made it, for having made it difficult for others who are coming to Christ. So this morning as we sing our final song and as we dismiss, I want you to spend a, a moment or two considering in what ways you may have hindered and made it difficult for people who are coming to God to come to God. And then after you spent that time, then I invite you to go to the Lord's table and partake of the Lord's table as a means of committing from this day forward to living your life in a way that works really hard at not making it difficult for people to come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, in these next moments, we ask that you would show us in our hearts if we truly know you or not. And if anyone doesn't know you, Father, then our prayer is in these moments ahead that they would simply by faith trust in you. And Father, for those of us that have done that, my prayer is simply this. In these next few moments, reveal to us at least one way in our life that we have made it difficult for those who are coming to you to come to you, repent of that, and then commit by partaking of the Lord's table to living our lives in a way that would not make it difficult for those who are coming to you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.